Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series, God's Rescue Plan, with a message titled, Moses in Exile. So, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 to 25, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. The word exile is not an attractive word. Sometimes we hear of political leaders in exile, meaning that the situation is such in their country that makes it impossible to be an opposition politician. But whatever the reason for being in exile, it means that the situation in the exile's home country is such they're not permitted to return. Well, sometimes the word exile is used as a metaphor. I mean, someone might say, I've become an exile from my family, meaning that they're no longer welcome among their own people. And someone might say the same about their profession or the career or, you know, about a series of events that has made it impossible for them to carry on in the work that they've come to love. Again, the word exile, that's not an attractive word. The exile is the outcast, the person who no longer belongs. Now, in our study of Exodus, you know, I have said that there are times in our lives in which we seem to round a corner and everything that we thought to be true of our lives no longer applies. We notice that this is what happened to Israel as they went from favored people status to suddenly becoming a despised slave class. You know, we're going to notice that Moses will have the same experience. And we've traced the remarkable protection of God on his life. Born as a slave, also born as a child destined to be murdered, and yet, miraculously, the baby is saved. He's adopted into the household of Pharaoh himself. It's the story of God's mercy on the life of one man. But now we round the corner. You know, in some ways, this chain of events was brought on by Moses himself. You know, in the movies about the life of Moses, a great deal of time is spent on Moses' early years, but in truth, The Bible spends no time on this. We move in our story from Moses, the child who was rescued out of the Nile, to Moses, who must have at this time been in his late 30s going on to 40. His childhood is skipped entirely. So let's start with our passage, Exodus 2, 11 to 12. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now, there's one of the telling phrases in this short passage. It's the phrase, he went out to his people. I mean, clearly, Moses, who writes this account, is telling us of his thinking at this stage in his life. Having been raised in the royal family and having been educated in the religion and culture of Egypt, it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that captures his imagination. He is in education and in status, an Egyptian. But in his inner thinking, he is Hebrew. He's a child of Abraham. And this inner commitment of his heart is about to find its way out into his actions. He's struck by the burdens and the sufferings of his people. Does he yet know that he's God's deliverer? Well, I suspect he really doesn't, but I suspect that he knows that someone must deliver them. And in this, we find a principle that we must take to heart, especially when it comes to our young. Do not discourage youth from feeling deeply the burdens of the people of God and their unmet needs. We do remember that in the call of Isaiah, Isaiah 6 verse 8, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. 
You know, Moses is still a long way away from saying anything that sounds even a bit like Isaiah, but he's already the man who's deeply moved by the suffering of his people, and the time has come for him to act, even if it's in a small way. Well, we don't know the exact situation. I mean, how it is that this Egyptian was beating a Hebrew, seemingly in some area where no one was observing. We have to assume the Hebrews were frequently beaten in public. But perhaps this beating was especially savage, and, and perhaps for personal reasons, this beating was taken place away from prying eyes. But, but since it was done in a private location, Moses took action and killed the Egyptian, and we have to think, thereby saved the life of the Hebrew. He then hides the body, and I would assume that no one knew except Moses and the man he rescued. So Exodus 2, 13 and 14. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely this thing is known. See, the next day Moses is again among his people. Has the previous day's incident awakened a passion for his people and for the misery they're experiencing? Why is he out among them again the very next day? Is his sense of injustice and the need for deliverance suddenly gone from a simmering awareness to a raging fire? I mean, what's happening to Moses? There's been a great deal of speculation as to why the matter of Moses murdering an Egyptian has become known so quickly. I think the answer is very easily discerned. The man Moses saved told someone who told someone until by that evening the story was widely traded. Moses had acted on behalf of a Hebrew, and what did that mean? I mean, was it a setup, or was he sincerely concerned about the people of Israel? It's hard to know exactly what happened, but Moses knew that if the matter was already well known among the Hebrew slaves, it was just a short step until he was brought to justice. And the interesting phrase in this passage is the phrase, who made you a prince and judge over us? And that's to say, these men did not think because of Moses' status in Egypt, and because of his actions on behalf of one of their own, that he had any special right to speak on their behalf. I mean, they weren't thinking, I mean, perhaps a deliverer has arisen. I mean, rather they were thinking, we don't know what this guy's motivation is, and we definitely do not trust him. And if his own people didn't trust him, and if the Egyptian legal system was soon to discover that Moses had murdered a slave master in the lawful execution of his duties, Moses knew that everything had now changed. So verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. He sat down by a well. It's important to imagine how Moses' life had now changed. Speak to someone who's gone to prison first time in their life and find out how much they're shocked by what has transpired. Locked into a small room, freedom and status suddenly gone. They have, in effect, been exiled from society. But Moses chose this. Look at Hebrews eleven twenty four to 25. It says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated by the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And the word here is the word choosing. Now, of course, in one sense, he didn't choose. I mean, he wanted his act of murdering the slave master to remain secret. I mean, who knew what might have occurred in the future? I mean, might Moses have led a secret group of assassins? I mean, No doubt he hadn't thought the matter about what to do next. But the writer of Hebrews wants us to know that even though Moses did not know where his action would lead him, nevertheless, 
He did choose to identify with the mistreated people of God. That part was most definitely his choice. You know, I think the the bitter part for Moses was not so much that he was going into exile, but that his own people had betrayed him. The words, who made you prince and judge over us? Well, those words must have rung in his ears. And along with that came the realization that he was rejected by the aristocracy of Egypt, but he was also rejected by the Hebrews. Indeed, he had rounded a corner and suddenly, it was not that he had gone from identification with Egypt to identification with Israel. Indeed, at this moment, he suddenly had no people at all, none. This experience of having no people is one of the most devastating things that can happen to anyone, to be left on one's own. I've known of one woman, you know, her husband was a habitual adulterer, and that led to their divorce. The church excommunicated him, and then because she had divorced him, they also excommunicated her. Suddenly, she went from having a people to being desperately alone. It's bitter to be in exile, to have no people, to be alone. But we now find Moses in exactly that situation. So where does he go? And our text says he went to Midian. Now, the Midianites were descended from Abraham. They came from his wife, Keturah. They were a nomadic people group. They lived in portions of the Sinai Peninsula. But their main location was in northwestern Arabia. And we also know that eventually they would become enemies of Israel. But that part of the story was yet to come. But going to Midian was an excellent choice for Moses. A wanted man in Egypt would have been no concern for the Midianites. You know, the Midianites were a fiercely independent people and would not have been interested in an extradition treaty with Egypt. They were just the sort of people where you might seek a safe refuge. Moses must have thought this was a perfect place for him. I mean, perhaps he'd find work or perhaps he'd attach himself to one of their tribes. Indeed, for the next 40 years of his life, Moses would find a new people, the Midianites. They would become his own. His previous life was gone. What he thought now about the Hebrews, we just don't know. I mean, perhaps he simply wanted to get the past behind him and move on to whatever future he might now have. We often find ourselves consumed with never-ending to-do lists. Our feet and hands don't know how to be still, but God does not desire our productivity. He desires our heart. Back to the Bible Canada teaches the Bible, not just for information, but to nurture our relationship with God. We ought to know God, not simply know about God, but it takes intentional time to slow down and be with Him. To help you make this happen, Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John have created a new 30-day devotional called Quiet Spaces, Volume 2. It's the next in the installment of the Quiet Spaces devotional. This devotional is free this month, and all you need to do is ask. So call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca to request your copy today. I'm reading Exodus 2, 16 to 19. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. 
And when they came home to their father, Reuel, and he said, how is it that you've come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And one has to wonder at this point, you know, are we seeing something of a personality trait in Moses? I mean, he involves himself in a fight that isn't his. Now, as to the fight itself, I mean, we've got to believe that Moses is physically fit and that perhaps he's armed and he's being trained in hand-to-hand combat as a part of his upbringing. And so it would seem that shepherds were no match for an Egyptian-trained warrior. But again, we have to wonder why he involves himself in that fight. And at least, so it seems to me, he's motivated to intervene in injustice. The man who would later become the great lawgiver is the man who, even at this time in his life, is the man who will not gladly tolerate those things that are wrong. He's already at this point the same Moses that we're going to meet again. Clearly, even in this small incident, God is preparing him for the role that he will later play. We're reminded that, you know, God never wastes our experiences, but there's more. You know, all of this has a great deal to do with the providence of God. The seven women, they're the daughters of Reuel. Two things interest me here. I mean, first, according to verse 16, Reuel is the priest of Midian. He is the key religious leader among his own people. And that makes us wonder what kind of a religion he actually had. And that is an interesting question. And attached to that question is his name, Reuel. You know, later on in chapter 4, he's called Jethro. And then if we go down to chapter 18, verse 1, we learn that Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel and how the Lord, that is how Yahweh, had brought Israel out of Egypt. And so he journeyed to meet Moses at Mount Sinai, and he would have been there, you know, two chapters later as God speaks the Ten Commandments to all of Israel. And then later in Numbers chapter 10, Moses asks his father-in-law again, called Reuel, to be eyes and ears for the people in their journey, scouting out the land uh, where they could walk. Reuel, or Jethro, says, no, I can't abandon my people, but Moses strongly appeals to him to make his home among the people of Israel and to be one with them. See, I mention all of this stuff to give us a sense of the man. The name Reuel may have been his title. The name Jethro, that might have been his proper name. The name Reuel means friend of God. And here we have to wonder. You might remember that Abraham once met a man. He was a king. He was named Melchizedek, who we learn was a priest of God most high. That is to say, the real living God had revealed himself to this man, and he had been faithful to the one true God. See, it's conceivable that Reuel is a man just like that. I mean, after all, he was a descendant of Abraham, and he too would have heard of the God of Abraham, and it seems likely that he followed him. And so here we see Moses in exile, and by chance, no, no, not by chance, but according to God's providence, Moses defends the daughters of a man who seems to have been faithful to the God of Abraham. So, verses 20 and 22, he, that is Reuel, said to his daughters, where is he? That is, where's the man who rescued you from those rogue shepherds? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So for the next 40 years, Moses has found a home. The man who was exiled from Egypt and exiled from the Hebrews still found a home. And of course, 
if God had not raised Moses up to be the Savior of Israel, that's where Moses would have remained for the rest of his life. The marriage between him and Zipporah, although it did become rocky, was still also God's doing. Moses had found a home and a people. God was with him, and for a great many years, 40 in all, that was his life. But more was underfoot. I'm reading Exodus 2, 23 to 24. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob. Now, while Moses was in Midian, five very important things were going on. God was at work. First, the Pharaoh who had sought to kill Moses had died, and the reason that's important is that it would seem with his death, the legal situation Moses carried over his head had died along with that Pharaoh. He's no longer a criminal and a fugitive from justice. That's going to open the door in the future for Moses to go back to Egypt, not as a wanted man, but rather as a prophet of God. Second, while the warrant out on Moses had expired, there was no change for the Hebrew slaves. A new administration came in, but it brought no relief for the suffering people of God. Had you been alive during those days, it wouldn't have mattered that there was now a new king or a new pharaoh. I mean, nothing but nothing was going to change on the slavery front. Our text says the people were groaning. We're to keep in mind that the situation remains desperate. Misery and bitterness are still the experience of the people of God. And one wonders if anyone remembered Moses. Did anyone remember that at one time there was one person from the royal house of Pharaoh who actually had fought for them? They had rejected him. Well, if they had remembered, didn't matter now. He was gone and nothing was going to change. Third, we find out that the people of Israel are starting to pray. They're crying out for help. And clearly, this must have been their cry to God. Sometimes we make fun of people who cry out in desperation to God, especially, you know, if they've never cried out to God before. We shouldn't mock that. Sometimes our trials are intended to force us to go to the only place where lasting help and deliverance can be found. You know, it's later that Moses explains his experience. And here I'm reading Deuteronomy 26, 5 to 8. And you shall make response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father. And he went down to Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. And there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt. And that then is the turning point. I see for many of us, our suffering goes on for we will not do what Israel finally did. That is, cry out to God for rescue. And fourth, our text tells us that God remembered his covenant. You know, that word covenant, it's used 25 times in the book of Genesis. But here in Exodus, this is the first time it's used. The covenant that we're talking about is the covenant made with Abraham. We're supposed to understand that were it not for the covenant that God made with Abraham, God would not have heard the cries of his people. But this is no ordinary people. These are the people to whom God made a binding agreement with their forefather. 
They'd been promised that they would become a great nation. God would bless them with his favor. They go to live in a land flowing with milk and honey. Theirs was a holy destiny. And even though it would be many years of bondage before they were set free, yet God remembered his promise. And that's the truth. When God makes a covenant, God's covenants cannot be broken. And we need to take that to heart. When on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. And when he had taken up the cup and said, this now is the new covenant in my blood. Listen, we need to remember that all of us who have put our hope in Christ have been given a covenant through Christ. We have a binding agreement with God. He, our God, has placed his reputation on the line. Heaven and earth will pass away, he says, but my word, my promise, my covenant will never pass away. See, we have an assurance that our God will lead us to the promised land. We're going to gain an eternal inheritance. Nothing can alter that course of events because God has spoken. See, the Bible portrays God as the God who intervenes on behalf of his people. Paul said, if God is for us, who can be against us? Indeed, in the moment, it may seem dark. Don't fear, child of God. Your best days are not behind you. God has made a covenant with you through Christ our Lord. Your best days are ahead of you. And fifth and finally, we therefore must remember that God has never forgotten his people. He's at work. Yeah, Moses is in exile, but God was there. And in his exile, Moses was being trained for the task that lay ahead. See, on the one hand, yeah, it's true. The years of suffering, they just kept rolling by. But on the other hand, it's true that every single year was one year closer until their deliverer would come. That's what Exodus teaches us. Don't despair. You may not see the hand of God in the moment, but God will not waste your experiences. God has a deliverance prepared for you. Thanks for your message, Sean. Now, I think this is an important one. So can I ask you to, in a nutshell, how should we understand the covenant? And to whom does the promises of the covenant apply? So a covenant is, I mean, we might think of it in terms of a binding agreement. Uh, It is agreement that God makes with the objects of his mercy and grace. So God binds himself, makes promises to us out of his love for us. Now, if we're not in the covenant, then the promise is not for us. But then having said it that way, I just need to add as well uh, that, you know, if if you confess your sins and and you confess Christ as your Savior and Lord, you will know that you are in the covenant. So keep that in mind. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, God's Rescue Plan, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. If you love reading the weekly blogs from Dr. John and Company, then you won't want to miss out on Back to the Bible Canada's bi-monthly Truth in Life magazine. In it, you'll find articles from Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Gaines, Phil Calloway, and other incredible guests, all with excellent, biblically-inspired insight. Not to mention the stunning images and visuals. Here at Back to the Bible Canada, the aim is to provide resources without barrier to help enrich your walk with the Lord. That's why Truth and Life Today magazine is free to all who ask. 
to subscribe to the Truth and Life magazine and receive the next issue delivered right to your door for free, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca slash magazine. And thank you. It is due to the support of generous listeners that Back to the Bible Canada is able to produce and distribute Bible teaching resources like this to all who ask.